0: Today on Dolby Creator Talks, we are continuing our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards with the sound team behind Maestro, director Bradley Cooper's stunning biopic of Leonard Bernstein. This film is nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Cinematography, and today's category, Best Sound. Joining us are the nominees from the film sound team, Richard King, the sound designer and supervising sound editor, with his eighth Academy Award nomination, going for his fifth win. He is a double nominee this year, also up for his work on Oppenheimer. re-recording Mixer's Tom Ozanich, who has four nominations under his belt, and Dean Zupancic, with five. Both Tom and Dean are also nominated twice this year for Maestro and The Creator. And Stephen Morrow, Maestro's production sound mixer, celebrating his fourth nomination. Maestro is a highly stylized and intimate film about Bernstein. His fraught marriage, his affairs, his family, and of course, his storied career. This gave director Bradley Cooper an amazing opportunity to conduct extensive recreations of some of the composer's famous concerts, all recorded live on set. The film features a Dolby Atmos mix that really blew us away. So let's hear from the team about their work on the film. Richard, you talk about uh, you talk about Bradley wanting the the track to communicate a, a sense of time and place, and I love the way this movie opens. Um, I'm not talking about the bookend scenes, but I'm talking about that first. You know, Bradley, you know, young Lenny Bernstein gets that call when he's 25. He we we figure out later that he's living in an apartment on the top of Carnegie Hall, so he runs down into the theater. The camera's doing this crazy swooping move. It's black and white, four by three, and immediately. You know, it says to the audience, "This there's going to be a presentational aspect to this. Um, there's there's a strong hand guiding you through this, but it also kind of felt like a 1940s movie to me. And I'm kind of curious, you know, that that sense of this movie feeling like a period piece. How did that dictate your choices from a sound effects? And design perspective, and also in the mix.
1: Well, I thought about that a lot, and, and I and I um, and and I think that he did want to use sound effects and sound design, like sound effects were used in movies of the '40s. That is very specifically. Um, if you heard a sound, there was a reason to hear that sound. It wasn't necessarily. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't. Uh, you know, the dog barking down the street. If the dog. Barked down the street that that meant someone was going to show up at the door. It, it there was a specific reason for each sound, and that evolved a little bit in the course of the film. That as we we uh, we we thinned out some s- scenes or made made I guess made the sounds more specifically emotion inducing or emotion uh, um, supporting, and the look of the film. The the opening is so good and so it just it just brings you into that place, his frame of mind, the excitement of that moment, that period of history, uh, so well. And all of that, I think, can, you know, works together, the the aspect ratio, the black and white, the nature of the, of the picture editing is very snappy and kind of 40s stylish, st- very stylistic. And, uh, and the, so subsequently, the sound design needed to be kind of stylistic and not, you know, necessarily rigidly It's realistic.
2: Yeah, one of the funny things, when we first were kicking around, you know, ideas, various ideas, um, before we started mixing anything and, and kind of what Richard was mentioning, some of the early spotting and conversations that we had early on, we were we kicked around some ideas about trying to potentially treat the sound of the film you know, something representative of those eras, you know, whether we were going to, we we talked about using, you know, old tube gear, potentially uh, recording something off to an optical track and then bringing it back in. So we got like a real authentic optical sound. And anyway, we kicked around all these different sort of treatment type ideas. And then ultimately when now none of that is, you know, all that's going to be kind of distracting, technical stuff, and and we don't want to do that. We want to very gently, subtly, you know, impart this flavor of those things, um, and not not actually do <laughs> anything that heavy-handed. And um, you know, honestly, I have to say, I'm I'm surprised that it it reads as well as it does because it seems like. You know, from our standpoint, you know, something that we were very, you know, judicious and subtle about not trying to, you know, hit anybody over the head with it and just kind of just give it that flavor and that feeling of those, you know, each of the decades as we kind of progress through the movie. But, you know, probably the biggest thing to it is is really like the density of sound, you know, and. Like Richard was talking about how, you know, older things, you know, they, they just had less in the soundtrack and they were very specific things. And as you get into a more modern area, there's more detail and, and fuller, more depth to, you know, how many
3: sounds are playing and stuff.
0: They weren't, uh, the style in the 40s and 50s, they, they weren't spending a lot of time worrying about ambiences, uh, were,
3: were they? The ambient what we have are, uh, they're layered which they didn't layer back then. But the, the tightrope was, that, that was, speaking of the scene that you were just t- talking about, um, we're very tight. We're very 40s-esque. But then the score comes in and we hit full face Atmos. So we're weaving that, that, that we're blurring that line and towing that tightrope of going, hey, this is a 40s film. But you're in Atmos oh my goodness the at, the atmospheres are atmos but you don't feel it as, they're not it's not smacking in the face other than when the music comes in and that and that was designed that was always to be the character so when music went away we the sound effects had to fill the void if you would and then a lot of scenes in there no score big big. Dialogue-driven dramatic scenes that we, the sound effects, are playing that emotion, and then and then the score comes in.
1: As Jason said, in a, in a normal movie, the that the composer would have been asked to to score you know that scene. But but um, I, I'm glad that we had the chance to you know provide some of that kind of back um, um, background feeling ourselves uh, using sound effects.
0: I had a question that I wanted to ask you about that. It was such an interesting decision to me to use Bernstein's music to score, to score the film. Um, and there, there were just some moments that are, are just so amazing. I, I just wrote a note to myself. Like I, I, I was so captivated by that scene with the, the, you know, the it's from Lonely town, the pot I do right. When we see Felicia for the first time, she gets off the bus and she's walking down the street towards a party and just like you lean into the music on that. And it's just so satisfying. It's really beautiful in that moment. But I think, you know, to your point, like there were also probably a lot of moments that, you know, were a little bit quieter, more interior that you might have asked a composer to compose something specifically for those, but you didn't really have anything. So that was an interesting, you know, sound effects and sound design challenge, Richard, for you. And and then obviously for Dean to mix that stuff in.
4: I also have to say that, you know, to Bradley's credit, how do you have a composer composed music to a Leonard Bernstein, you know, movie without it just being like, you know, Who would have the guts guts to do that? We have Lenny's music. Let's use it when it, when it's appropriate, when it's not, let's let it hang.
2: One of the things I think is so cool about what we're talking about here and the way the music is used in the movie um, is very little of it is used in the way that a traditional score is. You know i mean that does exist but there's not that much of it in the movie you know like this when this music plays like you said in that the scene when we first meet felicia you know it was designed; it was supposed to be like just grand and overwhelming and wow it's
0: operatic in a sense right you, we, we know we are meeting the heroine of the film at this moment
2: exactly Exactly. And, and, you know, it's just so great that that then in the other scenes, you know, to, to contrast that, be, meeting her and then, you know, skip forward a couple of scenes to when the two of them go down into the underground theater and they have this big, you know, fairly lengthy scene and there's no music until the very end that's taking us off into another scene. And what's so great about it is it really highlights their incredible performances you know there's nothing like it's so quiet and intimate that everything is exposed not just for sound but for their performances everything that's going on there you get you get a depth you know of detail that you would normally never get you know and and without having the music there to fill in the spaces the space is filled in by you know the the reverb of the space and little movements they make and and all these little nuancey details.
3: A gift
1: for me, my liege. Oh, that's very good. Is
4: <laughs> your line.
1: Oh, uh, uh, oh, with your little spots of wax, white rose, you look like the extravagantly hands of the flower. No, 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 the you. J- don't. Uh, <laughs> you look like the eye.
3: Of a broken moon. No, you're terrible. What's your line? You're always changing, my love. I didn't see you yesterday. But I looked at your horse. It's so beautiful. But not as beautiful as you are. Because you are a dragon.
0: I'm glad you brought that scene up because it was, it was it's one that I wanted to to talk with you guys about um you know I think you know when people think about the sound of of maestro and the sound design and the mix it's you know you want to there there are certain you know, big sequences that we will talk about in a, in a few minutes. But I was really, my attention was really captured by that scene in the basement theater between the two of them. And Steve, I would love for you to talk just a little bit about, I mean, part of what we're talking about, about this aesthetic of the 1940s movies is that, that ratatat dialogue overlap, you know, they didn't overlap back in movies of the 40s because they couldn't really get away with that. But we've you've introduced that as a conceit. But just recording that dialogue. And there, I don't think there's a scene in this movie where people aren't talking with a cigarette dangling out of their mouths. And like just tell me about capturing that and, and trying to maintain that intelligibility all the way through the process.
4: For one, we have an amazing dialogue editor for, you know, that, that is a key in this as well.
0: This is Tony Martinez. You're talking about. Tony Martinez, yes.
4: And he's amazing. He's, he's incredible. Um, um but those scenes, you know, like especially like the the theater where they're on stage together, you know, you the way the film is shot, especially with that open light, you had the radio micum, and you had to be careful where they were going because there was a lot of movement, and um, and so there there's occasions, you know, when you're on set, you're you're always looking and you're always thinking, okay, you know, now they're really close. Felicia's mouth is right here, you know, right next to his tie. Oh, that's where his mic is. So guarantee, you know, and you can sit there and A B it and your headphones live and you're like, okay, her mic sounds way better. Or her voice sounds way better on his mic. And Right. But you know that, you know, you're recording everything and you you know that, you know, the team, you know, and, and the you know in post will be able to look at it and really listen to both sides of it and go, oh, this is better for this line. This is because there are times where she is so quiet. But it works because, you know, there's there's that, you know, it's the signals there we're recording it and we're making sure that it's as clean as we can, but also you have, you know, a camera that pushes along a wooden stage, you know, and it's on a dolly and the camera's 600 pounds, you know, on a hundred year old stage. So, you know, is there going to be creaks and cracks and do, you you know, behind camera, there's 25 people trying to take, trying to do their thing. And, you know, so it's all, it's a, it's a team effort when you're on set to make sure okay minimum people need to be moving can we put down extra plywood on top of the stage to make sure those creaks aren't as loud? Cause you can, you can soften those creaks out. And there's just a bunch of pre-thought that goes into it. And then sometimes you're just stuck. It's a giant wide shot that the doll is going to push in the whole time you see the floor and they're not going to paint out plywood. So, um, but yeah, I mean the, the, the idea was always <clears throat> not to get in the way of the, of the uh, performances the, you know, if you want to overlap all the dialogue, you know, let's do that, but let's do it in a way that we can record it. You know, let, let's make sure we've covered everybody's, everybody's, you know, dialogue with radio mics or booms or, you know, just just to have everybody on a microphone no matter what. And then to sit back at the cart and just listen with without, you know, sometimes it's easy to read along to the script and you know exactly what they're saying because you're reading it. And so sometimes you just have to listen without reading along. And make sure you're understanding what they're saying and if the clarity's there then it's there for
0: the rest of the guys richard tom and dean tell me about what's the approach to mixing a scene like that because you know it, it I, I know the dirty little secret is sometimes those are the hardest scenes to mix because you've got nothing to hide behind there's really nothing like it's just you know there's not a lot of exp- no explosions to be heard in that scene to kind of cover up uh you know bumps in the in in, in the track and so uh, you know i just imagine that must have been such a difficult scene to to, to mix because, you know, it's so simple,
2: so simple and yet so hard. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. It's like, that's, you know, kind of what we're saying is that there's, there is nothing to hide behind. So, um, anything that's a problem is a real problem, you know, um, whether that just is room noise or, you know, um, a part where we're transitioning between the two or, or whatever mics are available to us to, to get them to sound the same so that you never question even that you're, you know, you don't want anybody ever thinking about microphones when they're watching a movie. Um, and so, you know, there's, it, it, it's so much about every little detail. And there's, you know, you slave over every syllable, you know, and you slave over okay, like I got all this part working well, but there's just these three words you know that are, are kind of lost in noise that I can't dig out or they're you know they turned away or something and and how do I save that and and there's there's almost no ADR in this entire movie there's I think two or three lines of ADR um, and none of them are in that scene so um, you know it's it's, It's literally, you know, a fine tooth comb of going through and, and, you know, it starts there. It starts with that dialogue, obviously. And then, you know, uh, Dean and Richard have to come in with, you know, the other stuff, you know, the Foley and the backgrounds and everything and shape it to, to make it support the dialogue and, and, uh, fill in all that stuff
3: but that's the selection of what Richard picks in order to to give me the material to mix. I mean, the selection of the backgrounds and the effects and the Foley was great, but it, it all sounds so natural that has to sit with the dialogue that Steve recorded and and Tom mixed. It can't be, it can't be a different, It you know, oversimplification of describing, but it can't be just any interior air. It has to be the air that has to sound like that air wherever Richard get, got it. It's a secret. He won't. He will not tell us.
0: Richard, do you want to give us any any secrets. What do you, How do you? What, what's what's your approach to a scene like that when you when you're supposed to be as invisible as possible?
3: Yeah, and
1: that was the goal, obviously, to be to be invisible and um, and uh, anything that. Was sort of wrong, uh, jumped out of you. Um, so uh, you know, we did redo some foley that was, sounded a little fake or something. And uh, we had a <clears throat> there's a there's a light buzz because there's a electric incandescent bulb that's in the in the shot in the in that scene that's lighting the stage. There's a little bit of that that comes and goes. It's not there throughout the scene. Um, um, but there, there wasn't a whole lot of air in there that I remember. There was, there was, um, um, as they come down the stairs, we hear a, 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 a subway rumble by, cause it's the village. So presumably the F train is not, you know, somewhere in the vicinity. And, and, um, uh, but after that goes away, the music stopped playing there. So after that goes away, it gets very quiet and it's really, it's just a very light kind of invisible, almost air, just something to make the. To kind of widen out the sonic, um, space a little bit. Um, and then that little bit of light, light tinkle, flutter, buzz, that's, uh, that, that comes and goes just, uh, that almost accentuates how quiet the space is that you can hear that incandescent bulb. So it, 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 it kind of draw in, I, I think it draw as an audience, it draws you in to the, to the, to the, to the voices and the, and the, you know, the acting, um,
2: I think the uh, the reverb, you know, uh, on that on the dialogue and everything, really plays a kind of a, a critical role in that scene because it is what is you know in those spaces, right? You know, they say a line and you're you're kind of hearing the room, and that defines the room. It kind of gives you the real sense of space of that room, and it kind of makes you linger on their what they're doing more what they're talking about and everything, because you're kind of just, you're, you're able to feel all of that, you know, fade away into the distance.
0: So I'm curious, Tom, you know, you you talked about getting some room on that. Was that something that you did with reverb in the mix or Steve, did you get, did you get, did you get like a a wide mic of them in the theater to kind of feed back in or?
4: No, we didn't do any, no, sometimes we'll do uh, IRs, but no, not in that theater. That's all put on there. I think it's pretty
2: much mostly all lovs in there. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's uh, put on there. And, you know, I mean, in a way, one of the great things is that we were able to, between what, you know, Steve recorded and the way we had the tracks, we were able to get them, you know, fairly dry because of them being loves and whatnot. So then I could, you know, put this great reverb on there and it really becomes, you know, uh, sort of unifying to everything and really, um, you're not fighting with some other weird things that are in there
0: Steve I wanted to ask you about that because I, I know that you were pretty dependent on there was there were key sequences when you when you had to use you know wireless mics. I, one of the things that I just I, I was so impressed with in the film is there' is some key confrontation sequences between Felicia and Lenny that Bradley, covered in very wide shots with no coverage. I'm thinking about, you know, when they had that really tense conversation by the pool in in Fairfield. And then, of course, the famous, you know, the Snoopy scene in Dakota, which is all played in one from a pretty wide angle. And these are really long, very emotional um, scenes. So, you know, did you, was was that completely all lobbed? Did you, were you able to hide microphones anywhere to get get any any other kind of, uh, any sound of that?
4: No, I mean, for the most part with the movie, you know, the way that Bradley works is he, um, you know, he'll be on set and he'll see something that interests him, like a frame far back behind the fence, you know, through the trellis. And he'll go, oh, this is great. Here, Felicia, come on over. Have a seat. Okay, here, guys, start rolling. And then we start rolling. And so you have to always be prepared, which means we're radio-miking everybody no matter what. No matter what, even if it's a close-up and that's all we're shooting for today, we're going to radio-mic you, have it on a track. Because when he decides, you know what be cool, let's just do that scene over there and we'll just cover our faces and just play it in the wide, you have to be ready for it. And in a lot of the movie will start in a big wide and they'll either walk towards camera or walk away. And so you can never really uh, rely on... Coverage, because there wasn't a lot of coverage, you know, so it was like you always prepared for it to be whatever shot we were going to shoot is the only shot of it. Oh, we're going to go in for a close-up. Okay, that's great. Now we have a close-up. So we're able to do other things, but you always prepare for the, not worst-case scenario, but for the widest scenario.
0: You want to be sleepless and depressed oh. and sick. You want to be all of those things so you can avoid fulfilling your obligations. What obligations? To what you've been given, to the oh, gift please. you've been given.
1: Please. My God! The gift comes with burdens.
3: Oh, if you had any the idea. the burden
0: of failing honesty and I'm sorry to just admit it, but
3: that's the truth. But above
0: all, you love people. And I do love people. From that wellspring of love, the complications arise in your life. That's exactly Wake right. Wake up! Wake up! Take off your glasses. I was pretty astounded by that. I, I got to have a conversation a, a while back with Michelle Tesoro, your, your, your picture editor about those sequences. And, and she told me that Bradley, he, he felt the courage as, of his convictions. He did not shoot coverage. Those, those wide, those wide shots were the only way he shot those scenes. Like that's amazing.
4: And that's where you, and that's where you sit back. Cause other filmmakers, you know, you go, Oh, it's a wide shot, you know, here, let's do a quick plant mic on the table for the wide and we'll go in for coverage and it'll be booms and it'll sound great. And, but you can't really do that, you know, on a on Bradley set because you could get caught, you know, not being prepared or not not having what what because he'll shoot a shot and go, no, no, we'll cover it, and then he'll shoot a shot and goes, oh no, that's great. No, we don't need to cover it, and then he moves on. You know, so that you have to be prepared that every shot is the only shot of the scene. And then if it is more than that, then you have more options, you know. But uh, so that's how we always played it. We just radio mic'd everybody all the time, you know, because in my mind you know if i short change these guys in post then i'm doing a disservice to the entire project whereas if i give them too much stuff that's okay they can mute it they can delete it they can get rid of it they don't need to use it but they can't use it if it's not there
0: tell me about a like a sequence like the party sequence at the dakota um everybody's i don't god knows how many radio mics you had on <laughs> all those people kept but then you know so that material goes to you richard and then tom tell me how you like Tell me how how you start to shape that. Stu, let's start with you. Tell tell us how you capture that first.
4: The Dakota scene, you know, that's basically the first scene in in color. That scene was shot, basically there's the Bradley side and there's the Felicia side. So there's two sides of the story and he filmed it at the same time with two cameras. One on him, one on Felicia and, and her friends. And so you're shooting two scenes at the same time and they're overlapping all over each other. And the way you cover it is you radio mic everybody who's gonna talk and then everybody who might talk and then everybody who's close to talking because he wants everybody to talk and then you put plant mics around to hear some of the the extras and you have some booms flying over for some of the wider stuff. So the hard part on the production side is you're looking at two monitors, one with Bradley side, one with Felicia side, and you're you just kind of putting both scenes in a mix. So you know Michelle in the editing room is gonna be like, oof, you know, when she's seeing Felicia, she's hearing you know, Lenny and vice versa. So you already know that your mix is, I'm just mixing to make sure that the mics are sounding good on the people, not that the mix is usable in an editing room. Cause I already know it's not, you know, so then you you throw it off to, to Michelle and, and and her and her assistants, I'm sure split it to some level that they can even understand the scene.
0: Richard, uh, for you and Tom had then tell us about starting to shape all that material.
1: Yeah,
3: that all went
1: into, um, Tony Martinez is capable hands, and and he had uh, some help tutorially, and it was preparing all those tracks. Tony also recorded some group for that scene, and basically prepared all the tracks to make them accessible, to make everything accessible to Tom, so that he had all the options. Everything was filled out. Obviously, you could hear the, the microphones had a had a had a had a big a pattern, so they they would pick up the people around the person talking. And and I think the scene comes out so well because it is it is a party. They were having, it, it felt like everybody was at a party and they were all having real conversations. It didn't rely upon loop group. So if you if you turned up one of these conversations, they were actually having a real conversation. It wasn't just kind of loop group babble. There was loop group babble there, but it, you know, it was the furthest people away from us. Tom had a go at it for about a week.
2: You get all these different parts and then i'm i'm thinking okay well how do i deal with this you know in atmos i want to make a a really cool you know great sounding very wide and immersive experience because i want us as the audience to be in the middle of that party too you know it's not just that we're watching this distant safe thing that's way over there we're in the middle of it and um if, if we're not in the middle of it, there should be a reason why we're not, because there are a couple of shots there where we're a little bit removed from it, which is a very deliberate choice. But, um, you know, the trick becomes, you know, when all these microphones are picking up, you know, uh, m- sort of conversations on top of conversations it it can either you know fight with each other if you're trying to pan these things out and separate them then like the thing that is let's say Lenny talking to somebody right in the center of the screen and if there's somebody off to the right of him who's also talking to somebody and and that's not as important of a conversation but Lenny's loud enough that he's being picked up on that guy's microphone well now it's going to like pull our image you know, and make us, you know, go, whoa, what's going on here? And and it's not consistent because may, depending on how they turn and how loud they are and all that. And so you have to really figure out what parts you can use at what moment and what ones you can't. Um, and, you know, as Steve was mentioning earlier, sometimes, you know, somebody comes up close to somebody else and they actually sound better on the other person's microphone because they're actually talking to the microphone. Um, So really, I mean, it just it's like, you know, Richard is saying it takes time to both edit all that material, you know, and and there's some in there that, uh, you know, Tony's going through and going, this isn't really usable. We're not going to need that, you know, for whatever reason. And so he thins out some and then I get it and I kind of decide what, you know, what is important at any given moment and and how we're going to shape that and what, you know how we can get away with this or that. And then another big thing that's going on in that scene that we play with that actually helps is perspective. Um, You know, there's different um, perspective um, shifts where um, depending on how distant we are and sometimes we might be far away from them, but we still want to hear them and feel them close. And other times when we're pulling away and that we actually want to push them away, the camera kind of goes inside the the vestibule of the the front door of the house and kind of hides there for a moment. And there's a point where it goes back and hides there. And Jamie comes comes out from the other room and comes over. And then we go out into the room, and it kind of like wraps back around us. And so. You know, we get to play with all that stuff.
0: You guys have done a great job of of, of doing my job for me uh, and bringing up bring up Dolby Atmos without without me bringing it up. But um, I, I feel like Bradley Cooper is a director who has really embraced Atmos and really kind of enjoys it as a storytelling tool. And I, I was just really I was blown away by the sequence. Um, I, I think it's the premiere of Mass. We're in the box with uh with Lenny, and of course there's the the whole drama going on between Tommy and Felicia and lenny and but the you know the way you guys mixed that performance in Atmos in that room was just really stunning to me it was I, I, tell me a little bit about Bradley's embrace of that tool and how you guys used Atmos in the track
2: We did a stars born and and our initial mix of a stars born was in seven one. Um, and, and after we had completed the seven one mix and we even showed it to the studio and, you know, everybody was happy with it. We then, um, moved to a different stage that could, could do Atmos at the time, um, and, uh, started working on the Atmos mix and, and we were doing little things and, and Bradley go, oh, that's, that's really good. We should do that in the seven, like, we need to go back and do that in the seven one mix. And after you know a handful of those notes, I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> check it out! We can make a seven-one out of our atmos." And and you know, sort of proved that to him, showed him how that works. And and then it was kind of like, "Okay, throw away the seven-one mix. We're going with the atmos, and, and and you know, it will fold down well from there." And so, I think because of that experience and and as we went then through a movie that was theoretically done mixing and and elevated everything by now putting it in atmos he really like loved it and embraced that and at that point it was like okay we were talking about maestro at the end of a star is born and the thing that you know he was excited about and we were excited about was it's going to be amazing in atmos
0: <laughs> so one of my favorite uh, uh, pieces of Bernstein's music that you guys laid in was that that really wicked use of the West Side Story overture. Uh, right, uh, it starts on the, the close up of Felicia. She's very angry about the whole Tommy situation, and that music tells to me that there, tells me that there's going to be a rumble coming. And it was just so <laughs> it was such a perfect perfect use. It was, uh, yeah. it was really fantastic.
4: He had a lot of the music cues already laid in uh, in the script when we were filming. So we would have music cues on set, you know, just to kind of be able to play back uh, just for camera department or, you know, the dolly grip to be able to push the camera at the right speed. Or So he, he was very, very locked into what music choices he had from. I mean, they've been planning it for for years, trying to figure out what exactly what piece and what part of the piece goes in that part
2: i love that one because it really plays this you know juxtaposition of how like clueless he is to his life choices at that point you know and what he's doing to his life and his relationship with felicia see
1: what you think see what you think this is gorgeous i know I love it. Hey, what do you want me to get uh you just get that big ass bag of kibble
4: we can all feel that can't we <laughs> wait you
0: you see what i'm actually doing here that, that that's 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 <laughs> appalling
2: <laughs> yeah I and mean, then as soon as you know he, he comes around the corner she calls him out on it and you know boom i mean, it's like you know we've all had that right you run into a brick wall like oh
0: crap Oh <laughs> <boy>. <laughs> Steve, uh, I know, you know, one of the huge challenges for you was that all of this, you know, this, this music was going to be captured live. And so I, I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit about, you know, when you knew that, like the big set pieces, the, you know, the um, Make Our Garden Grow, the choral performance, and then obviously the huge, the huge performance of, of, uh, you know, the Mahler at, at, at Cathedral, you know, once once you found out from Bradley that this was going to be an important thing, that this music was all going to be performed live and it needed to be captured. How did you start to figure out how to, you know, to, to make this happen?
4: We double checked and then triple checked with that. He wasn't kidding. And then uh, and then Jason Reuter and I started um, thinking about, well, how do we you know, how do we do that and what is the best way to capture it? And certain things were were somewhat easy, you know, when he's teaching the the, the student how to conduct. It's kind of like, well, those are start and stops and that would be really hard to do with the playback track. So of course it has to be live, you know, and you want it to change. And then, uh, which was the first thing we filmed, um, day one and, and the first music piece we filmed.
0: I heard that, that, that scene at Tanglewood when he's coaching the student was actually day one with and him and him and all of that makeup and the whole prosthetic
4: thing. And his prosthetic I um, Kazoo had, covid for the entire like we were going to like all of a sudden it was going to be over <laughs> like we're going to have to push a week if if he doesn't test negative we're you know we pushed a day we were there setting up for two days going well, this could be for nothing we could be pulling this down in tomorrow so but the, yeah that was the first day um and once once that was you know in the can and successful it gave us all a little bit more like okay this is going to be you know this is going to be not easy but easier than we had imagined. And of course, Ely Cathedral has its challenges where it's, it's a very big building. It's a very echoey concrete house. You know, I mean, the, the reverb goes on forever in that, in that place. And, you know, the more Jason Reuter did the research, the more he'd call me and say, you know, it's almost impossible to get a good recording in that place. We really got to convince them. Otherwise <laughs> I was like, you're not going to convince a moving train to stop on a dime. So we're going to do it. And I think, you know, the idea being, well, how do we do it the best way? And we reached out to LSO and said, hey, you guys have played here before. Who do you, you know, what companies have you used to record? Uh, And they turned us on the Classic Sound, which is a company that's been in the Ely Cathedral a bunch of times and records the LSO. And so for the next year, we would talk to Classic Sound and say, you know, here's the idea. Here's what we want to do. But we want to record this in a way that that you don't typically record an orchestra in, you know, I mean, even in a, even in a, a scoring stage, you know, it, it's a little different. It's more separation. And what we want to do is try to capture this live, but in a way that, you know, uh, Dean and Tom and, and, and Richard, everybody could play in Atmos and, and really put the audience into the middle of that orchestra in a way that nobody's really heard unless you're in the orchestra, unless you're the conductor. And there's only a handful of people in the world that are, that can stand in that position. So we really wanted to put that audience in that position and how best do we do that? You know, and and we were very fortunate that Netflix took the gamble because they were, you know, it's a huge financial risk. If you have all those, you know, the LSO and the the choir and everybody performing live and you don't get it, that's a huge waste of money. And then you have to re-record it. You know, you have to fix it and, and, and change it. And so we were fortunate enough to have the faith that, you know, Netflix put behind us. And also, you know, almost the overconfidence that we could get it. Cause we would show up and like, here we go. And we'd just start doing things and you'd start setting it up and you're just moving through it, not thinking. And there was only the moment when you were finished and you went, holy crap, we did it. Like and that could have been a wipeout, you know, but like the fact that we got it, um, I think that we, I, I don't know. I think I slept better that night than i've slept in years i mean because for years you know you're thinking like oh this is gonna be yeah you know, because we're leading up to it you know it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we're going down the film and then all of a sudden it's like here's the big thing and if we blow it that's it you know it's kind of like bradley playing at glastonbury for a star is born it's like here's this giant scene we're gonna shoot it right at the end don't blow it you know and then <laughs> no pressure but then as soon as it's over you're like that was easy, you know, but it wasn't. Well, the Ely Cathedral, we shot for two days. Uh, we prepped it for a day. We, you know, we loaded in the day before. And the hard part is, you know, you're always loading in, and then camera's also loading in at the same time. So it's like, it's not really, you know, you kind of have to stay out of their way. And then, and then we're working around them, they're working around us. But we shot for the first day. Um, and, you know, in Bradley's words, he was saying he wasn't really feeling it. Like he wasn't, he was just nervous about the whole thing, you know, because it's also for him, it's, you know, decades of building up to this moment in front of the best choir in the world or best, you know, orchestra in the world. And you're pretending to be the conductor, you know, and it's like, the, you know, the pressure that you're putting on yourself to be perfect and you're just not hitting it. And so that night, I think he went back to the hotel and just thought about it and came in the next day and said, you know, let me do it one more time. And let's just do this one shot where the camera goes around. Because the, the whole movie we had filmed at that point, the whole thing, and it was all these big wide shots, all these shots that played in one. And the day before, we shot it like a regular you know, movie or TV show where you're doing a ton of coverage. And that way you can cut around mistakes or whatever it is. And so the next day, he goes, you know what? Our film is really just these big wide shots. Let's shoot this shot with a crane. Come all the way around, come back around. By the end of the song, be over Felicia's shoulder. And uh, and that's it. We we shot that on the last day, the last take, and that was it. I mean, that was done as soon as that take was over. You know, we everybody knew we had it. Even the LSO came up to to Bradley and said, "Yeah, yesterday was terrible. Today you nailed it. That's the take you need to use." Yeah.
0: And looking at it now, it just—it's so—it's so so inevitable. Like you need to land on on Felicia
4: at the end of it. Oh yeah,
0: it's amazing. So just a technical—how many how many microphones?
4: That one, I think we're up to sixty-two microphones, sixty-two tracks on that one.
0: Amazing. Amazing.
4: I mean, some are, some are used, some are not, you know, we put radio mics on the opera singers. I don't think they'll ever get used. You know, you use the actual mics, but you do it because you're like, well, let's just, you know, they're singing, let's get it a different mic on it, but you probably won't
0: use it. We're them. here. We might as well get it, right?
4: That's right. Yeah. These guys can always mute and delete later. <laughs> let's get them in
0: abundance. Dean and Tom, just to, any quick thoughts about like just mixing that sequence, uh, that must have been so much fun and yet terrifying at the same time.
2: It was a lot of fun. Um, I I would not say it was terrifying. It
0: was terrifying for Steve to to record it. You guys were... You guys just had to...
2: Yeah, well, I had it. It was already recorded, so, you know... I mean, worst case, I'd just say, oh, Mara blew it. Uh, We'll have to... (laughs) I knew we had something, you know, great in that. I mean, the movie is structured such that you're, you're built up and leading to that thing. So I knew that that was our climax in a way you know in the movie this was the the top of the hill and and it really had to pay off and it had to you know be everything you could expect out of something like that and so so yeah there was definitely some you know massaging of the parts and trying to figure out how to really get how to sort of make us get overwhelmed at at different moments you know with the sound you know i mean bradley's performance is doing that and and just sort of like the the scope of what's happening is doing that but the sound has to do its part of you know delivering that and and really you know um the shape of it has to ebb and flow and then you know like a low end in certain parts has to really like swell up and and it has to mimic your feeling of that so it has to support that um and then there's you know the the sort of geography of what's happening and and trying to make it feel like oh the choir's kind of over here we gotta feel them over there but you can't also you know with any of those parts do it too much too deliberately because it would you know everything's on one side of the room that wouldn't sound right so uh you know it's it's really a matter of feel i mean it's very much a matter of i try to just put my sort of intuitive sense uh, into work and and really go on just what i feel and how i feel about it and and try to like bring that out.
4: I remember a nice story that you guys have told that when you're on the mix stage and you're playing back something, if anything throws you out just for a second or anything loses your attention, that's when you say stop and figure out what that is. And I always think that that's such an interesting way to do that because that is the feel in, are you being, are you thinking about something else and why?
3: Anytime your focus is taken away, you got to find out why. And so much of, so much of the mix was all about, feel well how it how we are feeling emotionally to what what's going on and what we're what we're taking out what we're pushing you know sonically
1: i think that's how we all work as as sound people right that's that's i mean there's no blueprint to any of this and it really is just uh it not just but it is responding uh as an audience you know responding viscerally
0: I think that's a great way to wrap up the conversation. You guys, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you about this movie. It's always fun to have you guys on the Dolby Podcast. Thanks, Glenn.
3: Great to see you.
0: Thank you, Thanks, Glenn. Many thanks to Richard, Tom, Dean, and Steve for joining us on the podcast today. Maestro is now streaming on Netflix and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. We'd like to thank our friends at Netflix for helping us put this conversation together during a very busy awards season. Best of luck to all of our guests on March 10th at the 96th Academy Awards, coming to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. And speaking of the Academy Awards, as I mentioned up top, this episode is part of our continuing coverage of the 2024 Oscars. If you'd like to hear more conversations with fellow nominees in this category and more, be sure you are subscribed to us. The Dolby Creator Talks Podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube and our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Maroquín. Thank you for joining us.